I want to invite you to open up your Bibles to the Gospel of John this morning, uh, chapter 1. And from, from now until Pentecost, well into uh, spring, mid-May, we are going to be pretty much every week in one of the four Gospels. So you can kind of count on, on turning there each Sunday morning. We're, we're starting a new series today called Jesus Stories. And we are going to fix our attention on the person of Jesus. I'm going to explain part of, of why we're doing that and what we should expect to encounter over these next four months. But I wanted to start out this morning with a word game. You know, there are lots of, of things that are popular on your tablets or computers where words are defined words. So I've got a, a big theological pastor word, a $10 word, you might call it. Okay, and I want to see if you know what it means. It's one that, that we tend to throw around sometimes at church or from up here in the pulpit. If you happen to go to seminary, you are disqualified from this game, all right? You're not allowed to play. But otherwise, I'm, I'm going to give you 30 seconds, and I want you, just with whoever's in your pew this morning, to see if you can define, no cheating, no going on your phones, what does exegesis mean, okay? Exegesis, 30 seconds, talk it over with the people in your pew, and come up with your best definition. And any, any guesses out there, define exegesis for me, all right? We've got Micah back there, I think. Did she have her hand up? Did she have a definition? What do you think? What's that? An argument, okay. One possible idea for what exegesis might be. Bo, what's your thought? Exodus. Okay, maybe it's another way to say the book of Exodus. I like it. Okay, how about a third, third option? Anybody else? What does exegesis mean? You're all waiting. Yes, Andrea. An explanation of a passage. Okay, that's... That's pretty close. I pulled um, Cambridge Dictionary's definition for us this morning. And they define exegesis as an explanation of a text, usually or especially from the Bible, after its careful study. So this is a whole discipline. Uh, Most of us who go to seminary take one or more courses on exegesis and learning how to do this, how to study a, a passage or a text in Scripture and then interpret it and explain it. It actually comes from a, a root word in the Greek, which means to lead or to guide, and the idea being that we're, we're leading or guiding toward a deeper understanding, a deeper engagement with God's word. Now, exegesis is probably a word that you know, mostly is reserved for pastors and, and theological discussions. But that doesn't mean the work or the importance of exegesis is is reserved for just a certain category of people. Um, I think exegesis is important for all of us. But we have a resource that I think greatly enhances how we do exegesis. Now, there are, of course, there are commentaries you can lean on. There are things like BibleStudy.com or Bible software that, that can assist you in exegesis. There are people like Dom Korovu, who actually teach courses on exegesis. But that's, that's not what I have in mind. All right, over and above all of these, I think the greatest tool, the greatest resource we have for doing exegesis is the person of Jesus. Right? Jesus does 
exegesis in a way that no one ever has or will ever be able to do. And I want to I think with you from John's gospel about why that is, why Jesus is uniquely poised to interpret the word of God to us, to interpret the person of God for us. And part of that comes right at the beginning of John's gospel, where John tells us that in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. And here he is referring to Jesus. Jesus is uniquely poised to, to do exegesis for us, to guide us into greater understanding, because he is the word. He is the text, you might say. He is a living word. But Jesus also is not just a, a word that we read. Jesus does his own exegesis. If we want to interpret scripture, if we want to interpret God's revelation and word to us, then Jesus is where it's at. Jesus is our guide. Jesus can lead us into that understanding. And as we look through these verses today, we're going to see some of, of how Jesus does that, what Jesus reveals to us through himself. As I said a few minutes ago, from now until Pentecost, we're going to give our attention exclusively to stories about Jesus. Stories that, that tell us how God is, what God looks like, what the word of God sounds like when it, it shows up and we can, we can see it and touch it and interact with it. We'll be focusing particularly on stories where Jesus meets real people, where Jesus encounters real problems, and how Jesus helps the people he interacts with interpret their reality and where God is at in that reality with them. We're going to do that by moving through all four of the Gospels and encountering those who have their own Jesus story there, the people we see Jesus interacting with. But we're also going to be asking members of our own JCC family to share their Jesus stories with us, how Jesus has encountered them, how Jesus has changed their story, how Jesus has interpreted the person and the presence of God in their lives. So that's kind of what we're, we're starting into today. But again, let me um, pray for us as we look at John 1, verses 14 through 18, and understand why Jesus is so vital to our exegesis. Lord, I pray that as uh, we open up your word today, we, we again give thanks for the written word, for the canon, for the collection of scripture handed down to us for men and women uh, of generations past who, who have faithfully recorded what you have done and for your work, Spirit's work, in, in guiding these words um, into, into our reception of them today. But Lord, I pray that as we come to the written word, it would also be a living word to us and that you would interpret, you would explain, you would guide us into deeper understanding and even personal understanding of who you are. 
May the words of my mouth as I preach, may the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So John's gospel uh, begins with this uh, several, uh, you know, it's, it's sort of half a chapter of really rich, really dense, really theologically distilled uh, information. We call it the prologue to John's gospel. And we just read uh, the first verse there, John 1.1. 1, 1. tells us that, that in the beginning, right, Jesus was there, the word of God. He was at work creating the world. He was at work communicating and revealing what God was like in creation in all these diverse ways. And he, he goes on to say how the creation that Jesus was integral in informing and setting, uh, setting up there at the beginning was full of God's goodness, but, but also there was a disconnect. There was a sense that, that the world God made didn't understand, didn't fully appreciate or was unable even to see the God who had created him. That, that a relationship had been broken there. And so a little later in John's prologue, starting in verse 14, we're told that the word of God, Jesus, took another step in order to help us understand what God is like and to rekindle that relationship in a new way. John 1.14 says, And so the word became flesh, and he made his dwelling among us, so that we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the first step in Jesus' exegesis for us. If you are a, a book lover, you've probably had the experience of reading uh, a book, a novel, a story of some kind, and using your own you know, imagination and picturing what each character in that story looks like, sounds like, acts like. Of course, there are lots of details in good stories that help supply us with hopefully accurate information to sort of fill out that picture in our mind's eye. But ultimately, right, we, we make some assumptions. We, we fill in the blanks as we go. If you've had that experience, then you may have also had uh, the experience of when someone takes that story and either adds illustrations to a book, or better yet, turns that book into a film with living actors. People kind of, you know, bringing that to life before our eyes. And often there's an adjustment period there for us, right, where our private ideas, what we have imagined, what we have assumed, has to square with the set of images being set before our eyes. As we make our way through the Gospels these next four months, John wants us to know that we are going to experience concrete, three-dimensional images of God in real-world places with real-world people engaging with real-world problems. 
John is saying that, that Jesus takes all the words and the big ideas we have about God. And he demands that we square those with those words taking on flesh. And that may be a mixed experience for us. It may thrill us. There may be stories about Jesus that that speak to us in, in, in deeply powerful and joyful ways. There may be stories about Jesus and what he says and does that confuse us, that weren't the way we imagine God engaging with, with us or with others. But this is why Jesus has come. To interpret, to lead out, to put flesh on our picture of who God is. And one of the things that John goes on to say here in verse 14 is that when we encounter Jesus Christ in flesh and blood, we are encountering the transcendent glory of God. The word became flesh, he made his dwelling among us, and we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son of God. There's some interesting language that John is using here, and a lot of it's obscured in English. But the the verb there at the beginning of verse 14 that says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us, is is a verb that means to live in or or to pitch a tent. You might translate it, the word of God became flesh and tented among us, or tabernacled among us. And John chooses that word in particular, I think, because the idea of the glory of God, the presence of God, dwelling in a tent, has some history to it. If you go way back to Exodus 25, when God meets with Moses on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses a detailed set of instructions about the construction of a tent, a tabernacle, specifically designed to house the presence of God dwelling among his people. So that wherever the Israelites went and wherever they camped, God's tent went with them and God's presence encamped among them. Right? The, the tent, or what they, they came to call the tabernacle, represented God's presence, God's holiness, God's glory being, being shared, being present to and among his people. And so now... In John's gospel, he's saying we have a new tent, a new tabernacle. Only this time it's not made out of animal skins. It's the flesh and blood body of a human being. And that tabernacle is named Jesus. As John puts it, Jesus is the presence of God who has come from the Father in heaven but has shown up in our neighborhood, has come to dwell among us, with us, so that we can see and interact with and touch and understand the glory of God in a new way. Jesus is not just an ordinary human being. He radiates that the transforming glory and beauty and brilliance and radiance of God into our lives. 
And we're going to see that glory manifested in all these stories about what Jesus does, how he engages with us. But I want to see what else John says about Jesus and his exegesis. Look with me at verses 15 through 17. It says John, and now John here is referring to John the Baptist, a different John. John testified concerning him, concerning the word of God that's been made into a human tabernacle. John testified and cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. John's pointing to someone who is transcendent, someone who is eternal, someone who is is greater and more full of glory than than John's own ministry. Goes on to say, out of his fullness, we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given to us through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. These three verses remind us that all of what we know about Jesus, all the stories we're going to look at, are drawn from personal testimony. They're drawn from the testimony testimony of John the Baptist. They're drawn from the testimony of the apostles like John, who say, this is what we saw and we we heard and we handled with our our own hands. These These are real stories about a real As we're going to see, there are many more testimonies in the Gospels from all kinds of women and men, Jews and Gentiles, righteous people, flawed people, all of who will testify to having their own unique Jesus story. But the thread that binds all of those stories together is that in every one, person telling the story has received grace from Jesus. Out of his fullness, we have all received grace. Verse 15 says, verse 16 says, grace after grace after grace. Jesus has come to exegete, to reveal, to lead us deeper into the grace of God. And grace is simply God's unearned and unmerited favor. It's God's acceptance of us. Grace is God's unearned, unmerited favor and acceptance. And so when when Jesus shows up in our lives and in the lives of the people we're going to look at, yes, Jesus reveals glory and and transcendence and and does miraculous things that, that no one else has ever done. But as Jesus does those things, it's always paired with the grace of God to set us at ease, to remind us that, that the transcendent glory of God also desires to be close to us, to be in relationship with us, to welcome us. God has unmerited love and favor to give sinners like us. 
And it's, it's only by supplying us with grace after grace after grace, right? Reassuring us that, that it's okay for us to be this close to the glory and presence of God. When we're set at ease in God's presence, then we can also receive another gift from Jesus, and that's the gift of truth. Grace and truth, John says, came through Jesus Christ. And here's how I would define truth as we see it exegeted through the Gospels. Truth is the ability to see God, to see our world, and to see ourselves as they actually are. Truth is the ability to see God, to see our world, and to see ourselves as they truly are. And the New Testament is very clear. That kind of truth comes only through relationship with Jesus. The Gospels define a truth on relational terms, right? John 14, which, which Jesus will say in the upper room at the end of this Gospel, he will say, I am the way and the truth and the life. It's only by being in relationship with Jesus that God can exegete and administer to us his grace and his truth at a personal level. And the reason we need Jesus to do that is because Jesus uniquely understands what God is like. Jesus alone, out of any human being who has ever walked the face of the earth, has knowledge of what God looks like, John says. Look finally with me this morning at verse 18. John says, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son. The one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father. He has made him known. I have never seen God with my eyes. I've never talked to anyone who has seen God with their eyes. There's no one in Scripture that has seen God with their eyes. Maybe the closest thing we get is when, when Moses asks to see God's glory, and, and God says, all right, but I'm going to hide you behind my hand, and as I pass by, you're only going to see the back of me passing before you. No one has ever seen God, John says, except Jesus. Jesus is different. Verse 18 says, Jesus is the monogenes, the one and only Son of God. We talk about Jesus in the creeds, begotten, not made, from, from eternity past to eternity future. No other prophet no other religious leader, no other teacher is like Jesus. Why? Because Jesus alone has seen the face of God the Father. And John says, more than that, he is also himself God. One who is in closest relationship with God the Father. Literally, the word there means to be at the side, to, to lean upon the bosom or the chest of God. 
That's the kind of intimacy. That's the place Jesus, that's the position Jesus enjoys with God the Father. He is in closest relationship with him. But it says that Jesus has come so that that kind of relationship might be one we are led into and we might enjoy as well. Look at the last phrase in verse 18. Oh, we lost our slides. There we go. That last phrase says, Jesus has come to exegesato, to do exegesis, almost quite literally, to exegete God to us, to make God known to us, to bring us up, up to God and say, hey, I know him in this way. I want you to know him in the same way that I do. And so the conclusion here, John is saying, is that when we see Jesus in these Gospels, we are seeing the face of God. Count on it. And when we are in relationship with Jesus ourselves, we are being drawn up into closest relationship with God the Father. That's why Jesus has come. And all these stories about Jesus we're going to look at this winter and this spring. The end game, the end goal is to draw us into closest relationship so that we might know God the way Jesus does. If you haven't experienced that kind of relationship with God in your own life, you've heard other people maybe talk about this, this personal relationship, then I I would invite you to begin asking Jesus to exegete himself, to reveal himself to you, to enter your story today. Ask him to apply his grace and his truth to you in a way that you can understand, in a way that you can engage with, and invite some other people into that conversation with you.